It's no secret that many countries around the world are experiencing staff shortages and the competition for talent is fierce. In a recruitment landscape with a candidate shortage, will hiring for potential fill the gaps? And if so, does that make emotional intelligence our most crucial asset? In this episode, we discuss the value of AI during the recruitment phase and whether it should be a non-negotiable for businesses navigating an employment crisis. Joining us to tackle these questions and more is Will Ainsley, Chief Operating Officer at TestGrid. TestGrid is an employment testing, HR technology and assessment science company, and we're thrilled to have Will share his unique perspective. Welcome to Emotional Intelligence at Work, brought to you by Genos International. Hi again, Ben. Nice to see you. Great to be here, Marie. And great to have Will from TestGrid with us. Thanks for joining the show. Hi, Ben. Hi, Marie. Hi, Will. It's great to have you with us. TestGrid have been a long-term partner of Genos International, and so uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Nice to be invited. Thank you. Well, tell it. What is TestGrid? Tell me a little bit about what your company does. Yeah, so TestGrid um, specialises in psychometric assessments and HR recruitment technology, largely. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also work with with sort of development purposes and um, and consulting and those kind of things. And we work with companies across Australia, principally of all sizes, um, but really really focus on. Uh, providing tools and the expertise to help you hire the right people, um, find the potential and then develop them. So um, our, our mission statement is to empower success through people. Um, and, and mostly that's through the use of assessments. Um, and we partner with Genos, as Ben said, for a, for a long time. Um, but we partner with a whole range of assessments from all over the world. Um, rather than create our own, that, that's our sort of uh, differentiator in the market is that we take the best assessments from across the world and put them in one place. Awesome. And so which which assessments do you work with from Genos on the AI side? Yeah, so we, the, the Genos um, for recruitment principally, we do a bit of development, but mostly uh, mostly for that. And then a couple of other AI assessments, um, a whole host of cognitive and behavioural assessments as well, skills assessment. We've got about 2,500 in our portfolio. So the idea is that we can fit any role, any budget, um, any any company. So tell me, what, what are you seeing or hearing too from clients and partners? What's, what's going on in the recruitment market at the moment? What's it like? Um, look, I, th- I think some of what we're reading in the paper is, is right or, um, and hearing, hearing online that there's definitely a candidate shortage. There's, there's no getting away from that. Um, top talent is getting hired extremely quickly. Um, hiring processes are blowing out in time and, and People are having to adapt to, to new ways of working. And I think what we're really seeing is that shift away from, I must have someone that has done this job for three or five years to an acceptance that maybe we're looking for potential and cultural alignment and all those kind of good things, um, which honestly, I believe will leave us in a better state in the future, having made those changes. Um, but there is definitely some short-term pain um, and, and people are having to make a choice. You know, do we hire the people in front of us or do we pause and do we wait until we can find the right, the right person or do we realign the, the job? So I think there's plenty of opportunity and, and maybe um, certainly what I've seen from clients is an adoption of new processes or new technology that were off the table two years ago that are now so important to limiting the, the loss of top talent. 
Oh, like, like what? Oh, I'd say that might be the way that they're using their ATS technology or the way they're using assessments or video interviews, all those kind of things, mm. you know, with, with that mixture of hybrid working, not being able to see face to face. I think uh, the talent acquisition space is able to challenge themselves. And, and certainly from what I've seen from clients is that some of the TA managers are actually quite pleased because it's, it's allowed them more flexibility and, and the opportunity to innovate. Well, is this environment really driving wages up to? Are you seeing a lot of companies mm. put a lot more money on the table for top talent and particular roles? Definitely in some areas. Um, yeah, where we see those real shortage of talents and um, you know, technical roles, programming, project managers are crazy. And, and I think you know, we are seeing it as a candidate-driven environment where um, you know, people are being offered a lot of money in certain areas to, to move. Um, and that's not always, it's not always a bad thing. And those companies are, you know, companies are having to pay their existing staff uh, potentially, mm. potentially more as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a definite challenge. Mm. We heard of one client who uh, people were asking for twenty or thirty thousand dollars more a year than what they were on. The client or the the organisation saying no, um, losing those people, and then it costing them fifty or sixty thousand dollars more to actually replace them. But you know what, Ben, how lucky that those kinds of companies can afford to pay that. I'm sure there's small businesses out there who are, you know, have a backed against a wall that can't afford. Absolutely. To go, you know, to pay. Like it's just, it's it's really crazy. I've heard so many different horror stories really from um, from businesses large and small. Do you, what's going on with, I mean, when I think about how long recruitment processes typically take, are there organisations out there that are, you know, cutting corners, just like, you know, thinking, hey, anybody will do right now because they're in so much pain? Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe not as much as people think. So if we say that the average time to hire at the moment in Australia is 40 days. Yeah. Um, but your average top talent is only on the market for 10 days, you clearly have a problem. Mm. Um, so companies are definitely having to think about whether they just want to get those bums on seats mm. or whether they want to wait and hire the right talent. And, and the cost of not having those jobs filled is, is a really important part of it. I think I haven't necessarily seen people having to settle for lower quality because I still believe the quality is there. But what I think you're seeing is um, particularly hiring managers being forced to make decisions to hire for potential. And we always say that, you know, if you're hiring for potential, you're finding that person that's got the right cognitive ability that aligns with your values, that's an emotionally intelligent, um, they are going to be a good hire and then you can train for skills. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's more what we're seeing where those companies can invest in the development of the people. And I go back to actually, I don't think this is a bad thing in the long term, that if you can find people that are more aligned with your company, then you can train them. They will they will last longer with you and they will be better employees. That's very interesting, Will. I think, would I be right then in estimating that what companies are looking for in assessments is assessments of more general skills that underpin, underpin potential, cognitive ability, emotional intelligence, attitudinal type uh, things? 
Yeah, exactly. And, and I think um, learning agility is a, certainly a, a hot topic. Um, so, you know, do people have that capacity to learn the new skills in a timely manner without, you know, um, needing a lot of extra help? I think that's really important that if you're hiring for potential, you need to know that the person mm -hmm. has that potential to learn in the first place. Um, but then do they have the soft skills to go with that? Are they going to fit into to the culture? You know, we all know what a what the risk of hiring that bad apple is. Um, and, I, and I think going back to your question, Marie, was is that mm. risk of hiring the wrong person? Or maybe that might be the wrong person that has the right skills, but they're not aligned with your company mm. values or the way that you work. I think that's a huge risk and, and something really important that, that can be picked up through testing and, and multiple other uh, ways through a, a typical recruitment process. So what? how do I test for that then? Like if I came to you and, and said, I'm looking for the right fit, I can't afford to get somebody who's emotionally unintelligent or doesn't align with our company values, what, how, how, what would you suggest that I use at the selection point? So it will completely depend on what you're looking for. So we would mm. we would typically consult with you around the role, uh, around your company values. You might have a, uh, a competency framework as an organization or a values framework as an organization um, that we can look at the assessments that we've got. And that's the point of having so many assessments um, is that we can, we can say, well, what are the outcomes you want to achieve? You know, do, are you looking for increased diversity? Are you looking for particular skills or soft skills? Or are you trying to round out a, an executive leadership team, for example, um, by having diversity of thought? So we'll try and understand exactly what you're looking for and then we'll pick the assessments and the competencies that we're looking at within the assessments um, to align with that and we can automate all of that process so that you get scores based on the um, the competencies that are important to you rather than here's a big list of 40 competencies um, you can't possibly score well on all of them um, and then people get hung up on the on the low scores when actually they should be focused on what's important um, for my organisation or for this role in particular. And at this point where, you know, there is a massive candidate shortage and people are in a hurry to hire, are you seeing companies do more of these kinds of tests at the selection stage or less? Like are they cutting corners? The majority, no. Um, which which might be counterintuitive, um, but I think because they're maybe less reliant on a resume, for example, um, you know, I've got a personal vendetta against resumes. I don't think they're particularly effective. Uh, they don't predict uh, your workforce performance. So because people are not looking for those three to five years of experience of doing the same job, then the resume is becoming less and less important. Mm. But what you need then is other data points to say, this person has the potential or this person is aligned with our company culture or this person is emotionally intelligent. Um, so we're seeing that continue, but what we're seeing is a lot more customization. So people wanting to really drill down into specifics for their organization. Um, we're certainly seeing lower volumes in high volume recruitment processes. So for uh, graduate campaigns, for example. Um, we've got a lot of graduate campaigns that, that have started to use the Genos and use EI 
um, testing because they've seen how important those interpersonal skills are, um, the resilience, all those kind of factors are, are really important through a grad process. Um, but whereas they 12 months ago, 18 months ago, they might have had 3,000 applications, maybe we're down to 2,000. Um, so it's less about sorting the candidates and, and doing that hard cutoff process and more into let's unearth some potential, let's identify some some areas of strengths for these candidates and let's follow that up in part of the interviews or the assessment centres. So we're seeing slight drops in volumes, but that's more because there just isn't the number of candidates out there. We're not seeing a drop off um, because uh, for, from that day-to-day -day process. Mm. One of the things I've always talked with clients about, Will, is the good thing about testing for emotional intelligence is even if you do have some candidates who come up low in it, remember it's something you can develop. So, you know, using that data, not necessarily as a cutoff, not necessarily saying no, but just being informed about the candidates and what additional kind of onboarding development you might do with them as you bring them into the company. How do you know they're open to, I mean, Will made the point at the beginning that you, you know, you want to know that the person you're bringing in is trainable. Some people genuinely are not trainable, right? How, how can you tell if they are? I believe everyone's trainable, uh, personally, <laughs> Marie. Um, I do know the type of individual that you're talking about that's harder to train, uh, definitely. I'll let Will um, maybe put his two cents into that question, but... Um, you know, from an EQ perspective or an AI perspective, um, you know, certainly learning to be more emotionally intelligent is more challenging for some than it is for others. I think it's like playing the piano. It's a skill. We can all do it, um, but our attitude and our desire to want to uh, plays a big part in that. So, Will, is there actually a test for learning potential and assessment? Yeah, certainly. Or maybe there isn't one assessment, but there's uh, definitely a suite of assessments you can use. And and what we what we say is that there's sort of different elements of of how it works. So you've got your your can do, which mm -hmm. is your raw cognitive ability. Do you have the ability to learn, um, and do you have that that baseline intelligence to be able to pick up new skills, to be able to learn the instructions, uh, to not lean on your managers too much. And if you've got that, then you can definitely uh, pick up new skills mm -hmm. um, and then you've got the, the the will do which is your behavioral assessments or EI um, to say that you're you're in that right frame of mind to actually learn new skills so you you feel the value and the alignment with the company or the role um, and you've got that uh, that learning mentality which is really really important and there's certainly things that can get picked up in in the assessments um, you can be as bright as you like, but if you haven't got that will-do attitude and that, and that openness to learning, then you probably can't be developed. But I think that's really few and far between. And, and what you need is a, is a role in a company that's going to motivate you. And then you can certainly uh, develop those skills. Ben, you mentioned that for an AI assessment, you know, don't focus on the negative because AI can be taught, right? But surely there's got to be a cutoff point where you just look at the assessment results and go, this person just doesn't have high enough levels of AI. Is there a cutoff? And and what what will I'm interested to know if if there is what some of the cutoff um, points other companies are using at the moment? There are cutoff points that organisations we've been working with have, mm. and uh, often they 
like them to remain commercial and in confidence for very obvious reasons. But typically what I see is they'll raise the bar on the cutoff when they have more candidates to choose from, or mm. they'll raise the bar on those cutoffs for jobs that involve high levels of emotional labour and require high levels of emotional regulation. Mm-hmm. Roles that, in other words, depend on empathy, self-awareness, roles mm-hmm. that really require resilience um, and the capacity to, you know, toe the hard line with people, mm-hmm. whether it be in a contact centre uh, or something like that. So, yeah, I think it depends obviously a little bit on the, the job as far as I see in the market. Will, would you like to come to that question? Yeah, like I, I completely agree with you and I think... Um, Going back to my point about the large high volume campaigns, the cutoffs probably change depending on how many candidates you want to screen out or screen into each each stage. I think in the candidate scarce market, then we are seeing a little bit more of or less concern with a cutoff and more of, okay, what's the scores? And how can I use the scores and the interview questions as an example out of out of the genos to um, to understand more about that candidate um, to understand if there's coping mechanisms or how they actually you know exhibit their behaviours in in work. So I, I think the hard cutoffs become more relevant when you just need to sift out candidates. You know, when you, there's just no other way of of doing it, and in a candidate scarce market, it's less relevant. Is it less relevant or is it just not prioritised? Oh, it may be, may be less prioritised. Yeah, absolutely. So if you, if you look at a standard high volume campaign, let's say you've got 2,000 applications, mm-hmm. you might do early screening and you might want to get rid of 30 to 40% of those, of those candidates to manage you through to a video interview stage or assessment centre, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once your numbers are lower, what we're seeing is people are not really changing how many people they're taking through to the assessment centre because mm. they've still got the same level of roles. and mm. um, We're just seeing fewer at the, the early stages being screened out. But is it still important? Like is scoring well in AI still important? Oh, of course. Can they yeah. afford to not test them for emotional intelligence? Look, I'll go back to grads because I've, I've been looking at them recently um, and, and been looking at uh, and lots of data that the AAGE have put out. Mm. Um, Who's the AAEG? Oh, AAG is the um, Australian Graduate Employers uh, Association of Australian Graduate Employers. Okay. So they, they work with lots of uh, lots of the grad teams across Australia, mm-hmm. um, and they're really sort of the industry body for for that. So they do a, a fantastic survey every year out to employers, mm-hmm. and they look at what are the skills, what are the methodologies you're using for your programs, costs, all those kind of things. Yeah. But in their most recent survey, the, the employers were saying one of the one of the key skills that's being lacked is emotional intelligence. So I think it was something like fifth in the list of, of you know, behavioural skills or or elements that were being missed by the grads that they'd hired. So it's really important, but yet only 20% of them were actually actively using an emotional intelligence test, be it Genos or, or any of the others. Um, so there's a real disparity there to say, we know it's really important, but also we don't want to test for it or we don't want to spend the money on testing for it, potentially. Um, so I, I think that's a, that's a good example. And, and it goes across lots of other um, 
types of roles as well is if there's a test, you know, you want to test cognitive ability and behavioural in the eye. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, the EI is the one that will get dropped. Is it, why does it get, is it an expensive assessment? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, the, the EI is a, I, I love it as, a, as an add-on because, um, you know, it's less than half the price of a typical behavioural assessment, for example. Um, and it gives you such rich data. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's up to, to us to, to educate the market and go, we know how important EI is. And, and we, we've, we know the stats around um, EI being, for, for leaders, EI being more important than your cognitive ability because you've got to motivate your teams and you've got to understand people. Um, and I think we, we do see that shift mm. over time and we're certainly doing more EI assessments than, than ever before, mm. um, but it is slow. It's a slow change. I'd like to contribute to the conversation from a research perspective on that one. The data that we have suggests that emotional intelligence accounts for more than a third of what it means to be an effective leader. So not looking at emotional intelligence on your leadership candidates by way of example means you're really not looking at one of the most fundamental parts of effective leadership. And not only in leadership, but things like aged care, heightened emotional environments, high stakes environments, mm. education, police and emergency services, working in a contact center where you are, you know, helping disgruntled customers. I mean, imagine working in a Qantas customer care or Qantas uh, call center at the moment, you know, that's got to require high levels of well-being and resilience. And so if soft skills and well-being are very important to the role, if they are, then I really don't think you can afford not to look at emotional intelligence, particularly because it isn't, as Will was saying, an expensive thing to do. I wonder whether, I mean, Will's example was around grads. Is it the case, Will, that, you know, AI is tested or more of a priority in leadership roles than, say, if it's a grad role? Um, yes, yes and no. Um, we, we certainly we try and promote it into leadership roles wherever possible mm. because I think it adds that extra data point. So, yes, you're using it alongside maybe a, behavior, a general general behavioural assessment, um, but the rich data that you can get out of an EI-specific assessment definitely makes a, a big difference. Mm. So, yes, they're adopting it. And, and I go back to, to Ben's point where we're also seeing it is in those contact centre environments and those kind of things that, that traditionally haven't been used. Mm. Um, but the results that you can get out of that is outstanding. We've got some some fantastic data from certain clients that, you know, their retention rates have gone up so much just by using an EI assessment because, as Ben was saying, you've got to be forced to have difficult conversations. Maybe you're chasing payments. Maybe you're mm. upsetting customers. That ability to be able to handle those discussions and be resilient in yourself mm -hmm. um, has, has led to far fewer people quitting. Um, and that... And the payoff for an organization there is is not just the savings in, now I don't have to hire 50 people a quarter, I can get away with hiring 10 people a quarter. Um, but it's actually, what we've been told is that the team leaders and the managers in those situations can actually spend their time developing the people, improving their processes, improving their outcomes for the customers, mm. rather than spending their whole time recruiting. Mm. There are really three big outcomes our research suggests improves from hiring for emotional intelligence. One is productivity. The second is you should see reduction in 
absenteeism, sick leave, particularly in roles that involve high levels of emotional labour and regulation. And thirdly, you should see improvements in talent retention because people are happier doing the work. So what does the research show then in hiring the emotionally unintelligent? Uh, Well, I'll let you come to it in a moment. I I wanted to share (laughs) uh, again. I, I think there's a couple of things to think about here. Sometimes getting it wrong with emotional intelligence in a small business can have a big impact because critical roles in the small business, if you don't get them right, uh, it can be really bad. Uh, and again, it can be very costly, I think, when you hire an unemotionally intelligent person into a role that requires good interpersonal skills, obviously. So, you know, a case study I can think of is an aged care facility that had uh, an unemotionally intelligent kind of head nurse uh, running a facility. And I just saw how this particular person's behaviour caused people to make mistakes, caused people to um, hide things, uh, and just caused uh, other unemotionally intelligent behaviour to be demonstrated towards residents. So when we hear in the Royal Commission around aged care about elder abuse, by way of example, that was some of the stuff that was going on in this facility because of the unemotionally intelligent behaviour of the boss, so to speak, making it almost okay to be that way yourself. And there were people in this facility being that way with each other, with residents, and indeed uh, with management more broadly. Yeah, and I think just just adding into that and without wishing to be in any way political, but you just have to look at the the parliamentary commissions in, in Canberra and New South Wales and, and that risk of, of that culture um, across an organisation from, from unemotionally intelligent people. Um, and I think we've probably all had those bosses or colleagues or people we've worked with where you go, well, I wouldn't like to work for you. Mm. Um, and we know what the impact that that can have. And, and let's be frank, if we're in a candidate-driven market and you hire a bad apple, into into a team, whether it's small or large, um, and and they're exhibiting that emotionally unintelligent behaviour, then people are going to leave, um, and and you you're going to be back to square one. Mm. I'm happy to be a little bit political for a moment. I mean, the Liberal Party <laughs> in Australia is going to pay a very high price for putting Scott Morrison in the prime ministership. I mean, that person on almost every test of emotional intelligence that you can anecdotally see, um, you know, was demonstrably bereft of soft skills. And I think more and more of the issues that that caused are going to come out in the press and uh, are going to, you know, see the Liberal Party be put back politically in Australia for quite some years to come. So what's the cost of it? Well, um, you know, again, in those critical roles, uh, it can be really demonstrably evident to your clientele, um, to your staff, and sometimes it can wind you up in the papers, as we're seeing with some of the unemotionally intelligent decisions being made in the New South Wales state government uh, recently too, around hiring decisions, Will. <laughs> yeah. Jobs for mates, by way of example. I mean, that's, you know, where emotions are getting in the way of good decision-making. That's unemotionally intelligent behaviour. Yeah, so I guess the cost then is, you know, there's the cost of losing good people and then recruiting. You've got reputational damage 
that is incredibly costly to improve from a comms and a PR perspective. And then there's the organisational and cultural damage, which again is a very long-term fix. Mm. So I guess it, it, you know, it baffles me to think that um, at the selection stage, AI can can be dropped. I mean, what are you guys happy to share from a from a cost perspective or a time? What are we talking about? What are, what what can businesses be up for to run these assessments? Oh, look, it depends a bit on volume, but let's say you know, average around sixty ish dollars uh, to do an emotional intelligence test and fifteen minutes. Sixty bucks. Yeah, sixty bucks exactly. So it's not a big ex- a big extent expenditure. It's not time consuming for candidates. Um, you can give some really good feedback to the candidates once they've completed as well. Um, it really opens it up for, for development. And if you think of that damage that can be done, mm. um, it's the return on investment. The, with assessments in general, um, and particularly AI, in, let's say, into leaders, the return on investment is probably about as good as you can get at any point in any process, in any part of the recruitment process. You know even at the top end of doing some really in-depth leadership assessments, you might be looking at maybe $500 to complete four or five assessments. Um, that return on investment is just crazy when you when you account for you know that person running teams of hundreds and yeah. millions of dollars of revenue and all those kind of things. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like a bit of a... Um a bit of a no-brainer and from an assessment point of view, from the candidate experience point of view, what's involved? Like I know with some of the assessments that Genos does, you have to go out and get, you know, other people on your team to comment on you or to provide insights into your behaviour. With the selection assessment, is that the case too? No, no, it's, uh, it's something you do generally at home. Um, you just get sent a link to complete an assessment. Yeah. And um, you've got all of the instructions. You sit down for 15, 20 minutes um, you answer a series of a series of questions, and and then the reports are avail- available immediately for the recruiters. So it shouldn't take long. Um, it shouldn't lengthen your recruitment process. It's not a bad candidate experience. I always find candidate experience one of those things that if you communicate why you're doing something, yeah, um, and the value to it, most candidates don't mind. Um, completion rates are extremely high. Um, you know, we we regularly see completion rates for for clients in sort of the nineties. Um, so it's not off putting for candidates, provided you tell them the steps in the process, why you're doing it, the amount of time they need to commit. It's not like the old days where you were having to commit two and a half hours to complete a whole range of assessments mm. um, without any explanation. We're, we're talking forty five minutes is about the boundary, really, for for. For candidates for mid-tier roles um, to say that's acceptable. I'd like to talk just a little bit about clients who I think are doing it well and put into perspective that there are a lot of organisations right across Australia and around the world who do test for emotional intelligence on um, the way through. But at the selection stage? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously there are more who could do, but there are a large number that do. I think those who are doing it well are also interviewing and sometimes role-playing for emotional intelligence as well. So if it's really critical to a role, I'd really recommend not only using a psych assessment, but then following it up with some EI-based interview questions and, Mm. if you like, even some sort of EI-based simulation activity that involves influencing someone, shifting their perspective, helping them through a challenging situation, something like that. Mm. When I interview for emotional intelligence, I like to test people's knowledge. I like to look at their 
um, whether they've kind of engaged in any EI development at all, whether they've applied it. I find that uh, that sort of scaffold, if you like, can really help give a, a great level of um, insight into a candidate. So let's say you were interviewing for self-awareness, for example, emotional self-awareness. I would say to a candidate, tell me what is self-awareness and why is it important? question like that. It's an easy question to answer, but what I'm really looking for there is the knowledge of the candidate. Do they really know what self-awareness is? Can they define it well? Then I might follow up with a follow-up question. Tell me what sort of things have you done to improve your self-awareness in your career so far? Candidates might talk about 360 feedback, doing a DISC profile, engaging in some formal development at work. And then the real kicker question that I like to ask at the end of that then is, Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me, what have you learnt about yourself? How have you actually enhanced your self-awareness as a result of those things? And that's a big question that I find uh, you get a lot of varying levels of depth uh, too. Okay, good to know, Ben, because usually my question is, do you have good interpersonal skills? Yep, yep, I do. Excellent. <laughs> and then we just move right along. <laughs> but what in those questions, for example, that that you ask, can someone not say, yeah, I know exactly what self-awareness is and nail the definition, but then have actual no self-awareness of themselves? Exactly. And that's why that scaffold is so important. So some people um, have a good definition of it, but can't actually talk about what they've learnt about themselves from, say, applying um, development techniques techniques to their self-awareness or their answers will be very superficial whereas somebody who has a lot of depth and has actually done the work might say I've learned that I'm very defensive when people give me criticism and what I do about that now is I go to my response rather than my reaction you know I've learned that when someone criticizes me it's much better to lean in ask open questions explore mm. it in a little bit more depth, yep. try and suspend my own judgment. That's a kind of a more thorough answer to it. Somebody who who perhaps provides a more light-on response to that question will say something like, oh, I've learned that I'm a bit extroverted and I like to socialise at parties. You know, well, okay, thanks for that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that's right. And I think when you look at that general behavioural assessment, so we, uh, we do a lot of recorded one-way video interviews, um, and, for example, if you're asking a behavioural question and you might allow the candidate, say, three minutes to do a response, we normally find the best answers are those that, that cut off around that one minute, one and a half, because they understand the question, they get to the point, they don't repeat, um, and then you know that they're truly understanding rather than just throwing as much stuff at the wall as they can in the hope that they nail a, a response. Hey, well, just to sort of... Four things to a close. I'd love to ask you about, uh, without naming the client, can you think of an organisation that uh, has included EI assessments in their process that has then gone on to realise some really demonstrable benefits from it and what those benefits were? Yeah, look, I think the, the one that instantly springs to mind is the one I mentioned earlier about the, the, the contact centre. Um, that, that has been a stronger case study as, as we've seen across any of the tools we've used. Um, because because of the payoffs, so you know their retention has has, uh, has changed so much. I, th I can't remember the stats, but I think it was something along the lines of they were typically hiring 70, 80 people a quarter, 
and that's down to single figures around 10 a quarter now. So the, the sheer savings from having to run those assessment programs, um, and we know that the cost of replacing someone is about 50% of their salary. So if you're paying someone, you know, I don't know what a call center, let's say it's 60,000 in, in a call center, well, that's 30,000 dollars to replace that person every time in, in terms of recruitment costs and the development costs and the training, the disruption to the business, all those kind of elements. So if you can reduce that by 70, 80%, that's a great payoff. Yeah. But then you get the other side of the business spending their time doing things that are other than recruitment. Um, so if you can get your managers focused on how am I improving the, the customer satisfaction score, how am I improving my internal processes, all these things will continue to contribute to retaining your talent, getting better customer outcomes, all those kind of things. And then the payoff you have there, well, that we can't recalculate really it, it, but it becomes ridiculous. Um, and I think that is that is the perfect example of moving from a model of we want, we want to find someone with the right skills and they have to be able to answer the phone and talk to someone versus actually putting some science behind it. And we know what we're really looking for in this role. And that we had to work with them and, and tweak the assessments over time because that's the point. As we learn more, we, we tweak and we refine and we improve the outcomes year and year and year. I always say to our clients, particularly in sort of the, the bigger enterprise space, if you're still doing the same process two, three years on, without any um, additions or amendments, then we're probably not doing our job right. Because as we learn more about the people you're hiring and the outcomes you're getting from that, we should be giving you that feedback loop to, to continuously improve. Can I ask for those people who might be listening and thinking, okay, well, this all sounds great, but I'm, I'm, I'm recruiting right now and if I was to do this or if I was to introduce these kinds of tests at the, you know, at the early selection stage, I'd have to do it pretty quickly. Is it hard to get these, these assessments set up and to get going with them? No, if you wanted to give me a call this afternoon, Marie, you'd be out. We'd be have you testing out this afternoon. That quickly? Um, so, so we can get out to to candidates. We've got you know everything templated, easy to get people doing. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, we train you on how to use the reports, how to understand the outcomes, all those kind of things. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, it happens all the time. You know, people contact us and say, "I have a live job role." Yep. What do I do? Yeah. Um, often, what people do is they send us a role description or a PD. Yep. Um, and we will have a look at that make a recommendation of the of the right fit assessments yeah um, and and work with you to, to get it live that's great i can attest to that i've done it to will and his team before myself when we've wanted to hire a candidate <laughs> into uh, one of our client organizations thank you very much both of you um i think that was really interesting to learn what the impact is of getting it getting it wrong but thank you both so much for joining thanks marie thank you will thank you marie thank you ben it was great to great to be here great to chat take care 